Dear Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Pray that you speak to us through your word, that you share with us what it is you have for us today. Um, I pray that you speak clearly through me and that you help me to be articulate and uh, loud enough for all to hear. And I pray that in my weakness, your power is made perfect. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. All right, so before we read our passage this morning, I'd like to set the stage for what I hope to cover and accomplish, and then we'll read the passage and discuss its application. In previous sermons, we've been learning how we as Christians ought to posture ourselves, especially in the local church. And in 1 Peter, we learned that we are a people for God's possession, and because of this truth, we should live accordingly. This plays out in how we order our lives and how we submit to authority. In Matthew, we learned that as followers of Jesus, we can obey the greatest commandments in a way that the Pharisees never could. Through the help that God has already provided, we are enabled to love him and our neighbor, and not only our neighbor, but also our enemies. And last week in Psalm 23, we meditated on what it means to trust the Lord and his provision for us and to rest in the assurance that we can have that he is the one who provides every blessing we need to obey and follow him. Today, I hope to draw on these previous lessons and apply them to our exploration of the text. A couple of questions I hope to explore are, um, what does it look like to give praise to the name of the Lord? And is this the same thing as worshiping the name of the Lord? Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 148 and read it together. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and they shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and hill, all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Now, before we get too far into the text, I'd like to start by helping us understand biblical hope. It might sound like a strange place to start, um, given what we've just read, but I think it'll help us get to where I want us to go today. To do this, I'm going to borrow from a definition of biblical hope provided by the Bible Project, um, though I've adapted it for the sake of clarity. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words that are translated as hope. The first is yakal, which means to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters receded, Noah had to yakal for weeks. 
The, he- the other Hebrew word is hava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release, and that's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yakal for the morning dew to give moisture to the land. So the Old Testament hope, so in the Old Testament, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will kavah in him. The only hope that Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, and these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. One example is found in Psalm 130. The poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord. O Israel, yakal in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. So biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope isn't focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence that things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Take the prophet Hosea. He lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires. And he chose hope when he said that God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus, and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Or kavah. My hope, or yakal, is in you. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Christ cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to sin and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they trusted. They used the Greek word elpis to describe the sentence. This word is used to describe expectation or anticipation and is usually paired with the resulting emotion. For example, the expectation of evil could result in fear, while the expectation of good results in hope. In 1 Peter 1.3, the Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn to become new and different kinds of people. More than once, the Apostle Paul says that the good news about Jesus announces the elpis of the glory of God. In both cases, this elpis is based on a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humanity. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. 
Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. Now let's take a more in-depth look at the psalm. Many of you might already know this, but the book of Psalms contains 150 poems, or what we call psalms, which are arranged to tell a story. The story begins with the promise of a coming king who will bring victory for Israel, and continues to tell the story of how God rescues David from his affliction and raises him up as king. But then Israel falls to enemy nations, and the people are left without a king and without a home. The Psalms then explore how Israel renews their trust in God as their king, and that he will bring about his kingdom through a future king from the line of David. And it concludes with five Psalms of praise. In Hebrew, these are referred to as the Hallels. Hallel is Hebrew for praise. Psalm 148 lands directly in the middle of the final five Psalms, and it's bookended by the phrase, praise the Lord. This is significant because the structure of the psalm, as well as its location in the overall collection, should indicate to us, the readers, that the biblical authors are attempting to draw our attention to specific links or themes in the overarching story. Now, looking at the psalm itself, um, as I mentioned earlier, it starts and ends with the phrase, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, this phrase is hallelujah, which literally means praise Yahweh. In English, we spell it differently as one word, and I've included it on your handout to, to show the word hallelujah. And most English Bible translations render it as praise the Lord. So when the more excitable among us are shouting out, hallelujah, praise the Lord, you're just being redundant. <laughs> but some Bible translations render it a little differently. The King James, for example, renders it as praise ye the Lord which I think is closer to the psalmist's original intention here. Today we use the word hallelujah to give praise to God ourselves. We use it as the content of our praise. But in the psalms, it's being used by the psalmist to address their audience. In other words, it's an imperative or a call to those the psalmist is addressing. The psalmist here has three main calls to praise, and each is followed by a reason to give praise. So if you're following along in your handout, The first call is a call to the heavens. The psalmist addresses the heavens and all that is in them, whether angels or light bearers, sun, moon, or stars. Let me read it again quickly. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. The language and order in which the heavenly beings are listed here is meant to recall the Genesis 1 account of creation. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. The psalmist goes on to give the reason why the heavens should should praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded, and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. 
The mention of the Lord's decree is referring to the pathways of the starry hosts. As we just read, let them be for signs and for seasons. The stars follow the same course in the night sky and never deviate. To this day, they're still used for navigation and for the telling of seasons. The next call is a call to the earth and animals. In this call, the psalmist addresses the earth, the deaths, and all its inhabitants, from the deep sea creatures to the land animals. Praise the Lord from the earth, the great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. This again borrows language from the creation story in Genesis. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. It's also interesting to note that in verse 8, the psalmist throws in fire and hail, snow and mist, and stormy wind fulfilling his word. These would have represented to the people of the time the powers of chaos and destruction. But the psalmist says that they fulfill God's word. This is implying that even these obey God's powerful word because he created them and they serve his purposes. And I think that this is because as the psalmist is reflecting on the creation story, he's recognizing that the deep, dark, and scary waters, as well as the darkness, fire, and storms that terrify and destroy are all under God's power. Along the same lines, the psalmist in verses 4 and 7 calls on the heavens and the deep themselves to give praise to the name of the Lord. These are the spaces in which, other, which all other creation exists. So it's like they're saying, from the outer limits to the lowest places, praise the name of the Lord. And I think this also points to the nature of each thing, which will be important later. And last we see a call to humanity. And here the psalmist takes a slightly different approach. The language isn't as obviously tied to the Genesis 1 account, but it's there all the same. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Here we see different types of people from society. The psalmist starts with the powerful rulers and then works their way down to the youth and then to the elderly and children. So the most independent down to the most dependent are called to praise the name of the Lord. This call to all people eliminates social barriers and brings us again to the Genesis 1 account. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In this passage, we see that God originally created all of humanity in his image and intended them, both male and female, to rule and have dominion over creation. 
And for this reason, regardless of status or ability, the psalmist is calling on all of us to praise the Lord. And now we come to the horn of victory for God's people. First capital. This is where we're given the reason why we should praise. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. This idea of lifting up a horn is a common expression in the Old Testament, and it always refers to some redemptive work that God has done for someone else. The image is of an ox who has just overcome its enemy and is lifting up its horns in triumph. But in every case that this is used in the Bible, it's God who is lifting the horn of those who are oppressed or suffering. In 1 Samuel, Hannah prays, My horn is exalted in the Lord, when the Lord answers her prayers by blessing her with the birth of her son, Samuel. And later in the same prayer, she talks of a day when God will do the same for his chosen messianic king. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. So what the psalmist seems to be saying is that because of what the Lord has already done in the past, again, looking back, we, in the same way as all creation, should give praise to the name of the Lord. So that brings me to the takeaway. I think there are three takeaways that I think we can leave with today. If you're following along in your handout, the first takeaway is that God is sovereign. I believe that the psalmist is trying to invite their audience to sit and meditate on who God is. This is the type of passage that's worthy of sitting down with a cup of coffee and pondering what the psalmist is talking about. There's no denying that scripture is clear about who is in control. The psalmist here is asking us to consider how God, in creating everything we consider good, didn't remove the things that we might also consider bad. He didn't eliminate the darkness, but he gave it a time and a purpose by separating it from the light. He didn't eliminate the deep waters, but set a boundary for them by making dry land. He not only created fire, storms, and all the forces of nature, But he also sets their courses and uses them to work out his purposes in the world. And as strange as it might sound, this is part of the reason that the psalmist calls on God's people to praise him. If you're a believer, then you are one of the saints that are mentioned in verse 14. This means that you have reason to hope, because in the worst, even in the worst of times, because God has already secured victory over death for you. This is why we are able to obey the commands that we've been learning in the previous sermons, like praying for our enemies and submitting to authorities, because we can see that just like those forces of nature, even they are part of God's purposes, and so we can earnestly seek their good in all things. To the unbeliever, this might look insane, but in my opinion, this offers a better explanation for the hope that is in us mentioned in 1 Peter 3, than most of the arguments out there for the existence of God or the validity of Scripture. Because Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In other words, the truth about God and his word is made evident by our love for one another. 
How much more so if we pray for our enemies and see their good? And what fuels this radical type of love? I suggest that it's our hope. As we just learned, biblical hope is rooted in the character of God by looking back at his faithfulness. And the knowledge that he is in control of all things allows us to cast our cares and anxieties on him and simply act with boldness out of that assurance. The second takeaway on your handout is that God is good. The psalmist is calling each piece of creation to give praise according to its nature. They are appealing to the nature of the creature by describing them. The birds of the air, creatures of the deep, the old and the young, and so on. And as we saw, the psalmist does this by using language that harkens back to the creation account in Genesis. This callback to the creation story combined with the raising up of a horn of victory, I think, is supposed to call to mind God's goodness and faithfulness from the beginning. So let's turn to Genesis 2 for a moment, and we'll look at verses 16 and 17 together. And just for context while you're finding your place, and before we read it, in the story up to this point, we see that God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to tend it. And the first command that God gives Adam is to eat the fruit of all the trees except for one. This should be a familiar story for most of us, but... Let's go ahead and read. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for of the day that you for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I think many people look past the first part of the command and skip right to the last part. You shall not eat. But it's all one commandment, and it starts with an affirmation. You may surely eat. So if you're a believer and you're tempted to question whether or not God has our good in mind, I'd encourage you to remember that even in the garden, he was not first saying don't, but instead he was saying do. Do eat of every tree, including the tree of life. I think that's something that's taken for granted. But if you're familiar with the gospel and the reason that we need a savior, this should take on new meaning. Through Christ, we know that we have everlasting life. But look at what God put in the garden. God immediately put everlasting life before Adam and Eve and invited them into it. Before they could do anything right or wrong, God showed them grace. Which is to say that he gave them the gift of life with him, and they had done nothing to earn it. Does that sound familiar? If you're an unbeliever, maybe you grew up with a view of God that portrays the God of the Bible as simply a rule maker. Or maybe the God that you were presented with was an angry God trying to catch us in our own good. Often the secular world portrays God as apathetic at best, or at worst, as angry and tyrannical. But I'd ask you to consider the God in the garden. This portrayal of God challenges even Christians who might see the God of the Old Testament as angry and wrathful, and the Jesus of the New Testament as his counterpart. That's not the God that the Bible presents. In the first pages, we encounter a God whose first act after the creation of his people is to invite them into eternal relationship with him. That's pretty amazing. At least in my opinion. 
The last takeaway I wanted to share today is that trusting in God is how we give praise. I mentioned this earlier, but the psalmist is calling everything to give praise according to its given nature. So what does that look like for us? How do we give praise to God according to our nature? In the story of the garden that we just looked at, we see God putting putting Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to keep it. We know from earlier in the story, in Genesis 1.26, that he created them in his image. So we have already the purpose and nature of humanity spelled out. We are to go about the work of our creator, reflecting his image into the world. So in one sense, giving praise to God means just doing what he made us for. Go to work, build relationships, and contribute to society. Do all these things in a manner that is worthy of the one who gave you the abilities and interests you needed to do them well. But there's another thing God designed us for, and we see it in the command regarding the fruit. Up to this point in the story, we see God as the one who is creating and shaping everything and declaring what is good and what is not good. So the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that are right in the middle of the garden represent a choice. Do we accept the gift of life in God's presence and trust his definition of good and evil? Or do we seize autonomy and define good and evil for ourselves? This means on a basic level that trusting in God means that we set aside what we think we know about right and wrong. We humble ourselves before God. This is an act of worship. And this brings me to one of the questions that I said I wanted to address in the beginning. Is worship the same as praise? When we think about the word worship, we might think about singing songs or holding God up in reverence. But a better description of those things is, in fact, praise. Worship in the Bible, however, is more closely related to the idea of crouching or submitting to another because they are higher in power. This means that when a knight kneels before his king, that that is an act of worship. It's a posture of humility and deference before another. When we trust God, we assume a humble posture of the heart. We worship. In our recent study through 1 Peter, Pastor Joshua walked us through chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Much of this language should sound familiar because we just read it in Psalm 148. Praise the Lord, because he is mighty and he cares for you. And much more than that, look at what he's already done. A psalm written thousands of years ago and long before Jesus' time is saying that God has already lifted up a horn for his people. The New Testament confirms that the plan for salvation and redemption was long ago set in motion before the foundations of the world. So how do you give praise to the Lord? You start by worshiping him. How do you worship the Lord? You humble yourself before him by trusting him. That brings us to the application. How can we obey the call to praise? Number one, we can trust. As we just read in 1 Peter, we are free from our anxieties, even the fear of death. 
because we trust the one who upholds all things and cares for us. Number two, the gospel can guide us. The gospel is the good news about what God has done for us. And in the gospel, we find the example that Jesus has laid down his life for us. He didn't wait for us to get it together or love him back. He didn't wait for us to begin loving each other rightly. He saw flawed, selfish, sinful people, and he stayed on the cross. He paid the wages for our sins. This is the example we should follow, but we know it won't be easy, because Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This summons to take up our cross isn't simply a metaphor or an analogy for fighting against our sins and desires. He means also that just as he laid down his rights as ruler of the universe, even to the point of death for his enemies, which includes us, that we, if we want to call ourselves his disciples, should do the same. This is an act of worship because it demands that we humble ourselves before God and give ourselves up for those who don't deserve it. And that we continue to do it even when it's hard, just as Jesus stayed on the cross until he had accomplished his Father's will for us. So what does this mean for unbelievers? In that call to humanity that we read in verse 14, we see the call to the kings of the earth and all peoples. This, that phrase, all peoples, is the word leon, which means people or nation. This means the call to give praise goes out to all people. So just as for believers who obey the call to give praise through trusting and obeying the Lord, the invitation here is for all people to trust and obey the Lord. So if you're listening and you're not a believer, how will you choose to obey this call? Or maybe you don't think you really need to. Two weeks ago, Pastor Joshua taught from Matthew 22. And we heard how when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, which of the commandments was the greatest, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On the surface, this could be taken to mean that most of us are doing okay. We don't break the worst of the Ten Commandments, and we aren't mean people who walk around acting unlovingly towards others. But if we stop and think about it, and if we take into account what Jesus taught earlier in chapter 5 of the same book, that if you hate your brother, you have committed murder in your heart, or that if you look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her in your heart, we begin to realize that every time we even think wrongly about others, we are breaking the greatest commandment the commandment on which depends all the law. In other words, we've broken all the law. We are guilty before God. And on Judgment Day, which will come whether we believe in God or not, he will have every right to sentence us (coughs) to death and to cast us into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which he talks about in Matthew chapters 8, 22, and 25. But Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. And the surprising claim of the Bible is, and the good news of the gospel is that he obeyed the law perfectly and died for you and for me. 
The Bible describes death as wages for our sin. What this means then is that Jesus paid the wages for our sin when he died on the cross. And if he stayed on the cross, or if he stayed dead, and that would be the end of the story, we would all die as well and stay in the grave eternally separated from God. But Jesus did not stay in the grave. He rose again, and he now intercedes on behalf of those who put their faith and their trust in him. So to anyone listening who hasn't put their faith in Christ, know that God has once again put everlasting life in front of you in the person of Jesus. And he's offering it freely. He isn't waiting for you to get your act together or to earn it. All he's asking is that you trust him, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. This has been his pattern of relating to humanity since the beginning. And he's inviting you to trust him as well. So if you want to talk with someone about these things, uh, feel free to get in touch with me, Pastor Joshua, one of the deacons, or any of the men you've heard preach from this pulpit. I know that, like me, they'd be glad to talk through these things with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who cares for us and loves us and responds to our praise and our adoration and gives us the ability to do so with joyful hearts. We pray that as we leave today, that we not take for granted the hope that we have in you and in the work that your son has done on the cross for us. I pray that we daily pick up our crosses and give ourselves up for one another and for those who persecute us, and that we be an example to the rest of the world of your loving grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.